Welcome to Bread and Poppies, where we discuss why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Hello friends, it's Hillary here. I have been meaning to record for a while now, and um, you know, I was gonna I was gonna do an episode after the Democratic debate. And I, I do have an interview that I recorded actually a couple weeks ago that I'm excited to uh, add to this episode. So that will actually be part of this episode. Um, but I've been putting off recording. Um, the reasons are probably fairly obvious because uh, the world as we know it is permanently ending and we're dealing with a pandemic that uh, is crashing the economy and killing thousands of people. And, you know, I, I've just, I've been doing really badly lately. <laughs> and I, you know, my, my daughter has been sick, my 18 month old, she, uh, she's had a fever and it's been really hard on uh, all of our sleep. We have been dealing with that. And Sleep deprivation plus massive anxiety from everything that's going on has just made it so that I'm just kind of coping and getting through the days. And to be honest, I I, I really don't want this podcast to be a downer. Uh, I only want to record, I, I mean, not necessarily when I'm only when I'm feeling good, but only when I feel like I have something to say that's going to comfort people, not necessarily you know, in terms of avoiding reality, but just at least working through these things in a way that can kind of bring us together and, and make each other feel like we're not alone and not just be a huge bummer all the time. Uh, that's really one of my goals with this podcast is, yeah, to connect and support and, and you know, not uh, just be a big downer, but I haven't really been feeling like I'm in a place to do that recently. But today, you know what? I took some extra dexedrine, I ate a bunch of chocolate, and I have the place to myself. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to, to talk to you guys a little bit. So the interview that I have for this episode is with Michael Hintz. He's a friend of mine. He's an anthropologist, a student, and he... It's really interesting, his, his research, his current work, he's studying uh, furry culture. Uh, most of you have probably, you know, if you spend any time online, you've probably come across furry culture. It's super interesting. Uh, I feel like I should have gotten him to do a basic overview because I feel like if I explain it, I'm, I'm not going to do it justice. But the broad strokes are it's people who are into... Um, uh, sort of animal avatars and, and, uh, yeah, um, I don't really actually want to describe exactly what furry culture is because I feel like I'm going to say it in a way that's not doing it justice. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for, for furries and the people that make up the culture. So, uh, I don't want to say anything stigmatizing because it, the, it's a very misunderstood culture. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say anything that makes it, uh, that portrays it with less, uh, respect than I would like it to. But, um, yeah, so, uh, he's, he does research, uh, 
on furries and he is one himself or identifies uh you know as a person who is involved in furry culture i don't know any of the terminology michael i'm so sorry um i should have gotten you to to kind of describe it more basically but yeah, the interview is really good. We had a great time. Uh, it's it's sort of more anthropologically focused than a lot of uh, the interviews that I'm hoping to do for this podcast, which is obviously more focused on politics and drugs. But we do we do sort of talk a little bit about the the overlaps between you know what you might call drug culture and furry culture because uh, furries are are misunderstood and popularly uh, stigmatized and and all of that kind of thing, just uh, in similar ways to the way that drug users are. And obviously some furries are drug users. It's a, there's a big queer um, component to furry culture. So we talk about all that. And we also talk about the anti-fascist, anti-capitalist aspects of furry culture, because that's something I've always found really interesting. All the furries I know online are super anti-capitalist, which I think, you know, uh, plays into the same reasons that a lot of drug users and queer people and trans people and anybody who is kind of slightly outside of the cultural norms tend to be very anti-capitalist because capitalism is inherently, uh, you know, hegemonic and dominant and, and white supremacist and misogynist and queerphobic and all of these things. So when you tend to live under one form of oppression, it's a bit easier to see the other forms of oppression and see how those things connect. So yeah, the interview really, was really fun, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, we did it before uh, COVID-19 hit, like really hit um, the Americas, and before things were really getting too serious. So it might sound a bit sort of, you know, anachronistic, a bit, a bit weird um, that we, we seem so happy and carefree and just talking about this conference that Michael came to, to Vancouver for a free conference. Um, but hopefully, you know, it's, it's 20 or 30 minutes of, um, of respite for you. I know that everyone's going through a really hard time right now. And, uh, yeah, I, I myself am okay. I, my partner has not been laid off. He works in construction. We don't know how long that's going to keep going. It's usually relatively recession proof. So I've heard, but I don't know. We're, we're, we're scared because he, we were supposed to move to Ontario uh, and he was supposed to quit his job here and get a new job there. But now we're, we're not really sure what to do. We can't really stay here because we don't have any family support uh, or childcare right now. But so if he keeps working here, then I just become a full-time, I just will be doing full-time childcare. I can't get any of my work done. So that's not really sustainable for me. But if we move to Ontario and he can't get a job there, then we can't, uh, I mean, we can pay our rent for a little while with my research funding, but it will run out and then we're kind of boned. So we're not doing amazingly. We're worried, but obviously we're okay. We, we still have income right now relative to millions of people that uh, have already been laid off and are going to be laid off really soon, including quite possibly some people who are listening to this. Uh, if you were laid off recently, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I'm, I've been looking for um, uh, sort of mutual aid funds. I've been trying to share those on Twitter uh, so that we can help sort of support each other and keep each other afloat. It's, 
it's really hard to say what we can do because the regular mechanisms that we have for demanding things from government and from capital, which are strikes and, you know, mass mobilization, that's become really difficult because we can't be around each other. So this is a really unprecedented situation. Uh, fascists and, and capitalists are already taking advantage of it, as they always will. Uh, if you feel like reading up about the way that um, capital usually responds in these situations of crises, I highly recommend Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine. Even if you just go kind of check it out on Wikipedia, the concept of, of the Shock Doctrine and the way that uh, capital consolidates power when there's a crisis, it's, uh, it's going to happen. It's already happening. So that's worth um, learning a bit more about. But I am going to be spending some dedicated time over the next little while trying to figure out and, and talk to people and research how we can move forward with with demands from the government when we can't mass mobilize and organize. Like it, this is just such an unprecedented situation. I don't I don't know what we can do. So my words of support and solidarity and hope are that millions of people are now in the same situation and if we can mobilize this this fear and this energy towards a solution, um, then, you know, there there is potential there. But things are really bad. And the normal solutions that we have to these things that, you know, is is striking and, and using labor power. And, you know, usually the, the roadblock to that is both um, the suppression of labor power due to decades of, of the neoliberal dismantling of the social safety net and of, of uh, unions, but also just trying to get people um, people on board, getting people to, to join unions and, and to organize. Yeah, those, those mechanisms um, are being disrupted right now. So I don't totally know what to do, um, but luckily... The whole point is that we're all in this together and we can we can share solutions. We can share mutual aid networks. We can help each other pay our rent. We can help each other um, learn and 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 organize and, and figure out what we're going to do. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any solutions right now, but I do want to say that um, the basic thing that I am always both struggling with personally and trying to talk to other people about um and encourage myself and others, is that there's, you know, feelings, feelings are important, they're real. And there's different feelings that we can have uh, in response to these things. And some are more productive than others. If you're feeling despair, if you're feeling depressed and hopeless, that's valid. But if you can try to channel it more into anger, anger is actually more of a motivator. When you're angry, there's a target. There's a reason for that. And all we need to do is channel that anger into the actual places that, that need our, our, our energy. So it's, I've been trying to, to not let myself, um, get too despairing, uh, even though it's easy to do so. But if we can just channel the energy that we have um, while we're taking care of each other towards figuring out solutions. It's really the only thing that we can do because right now we don't have a choice and we need to do everything that we can to keep each other safe. Yeah, so 
right now, politics has really taken a backseat to the pandemic, or at least electoral politics, the, the Democratic primary. Um, yeah, and that's the other reason I have not been motivated to record is uh, I'm bad at dealing with negative feelings and uh, our boy is not doing so well in this primary. Uh, most of the signs that we would rely on to know how things are going to go are showing that Joe Biden... Oh, God, I don't want to say it. Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. Oh, my God, we officially live in the darkest timeline. It's hell world. It's, I can't, I mean, he's not the worst candidate that could have won. To be fair, let's be clear here. On the plus side, Pete Buttigieg did not win. And even better... Fucking Michael Bloomberg didn't win. That actually would have been the worst possible scenario. But right now, what it's looking like is Joe Biden. Um, but the, so the problem, what that means is that uh, Trump's going to win if Joe Biden remains the nominee until the November election. That's just, that's, it's, he's, he's senile. He's terrible. It's just, I would be amazed uh, if if Joe Biden beat Trump. But I honestly don't think it's going to even get that far because I don't think that Joe Biden can make it to November. I think a lot depends right now on who they would choose as his vice president because that is the person that would basically be assuming all the duties. Um, either if Joe Biden becomes completely incapacitated before the election and they need to boost, you know, just decide that, nope, his VP is now going to be the presidential nominee, um, which, you know, of course would be, once again, the, the DNC doing a coup and just choosing who the presidential nominee is going to be, or at, at the very best case scenario for them, um, Biden, even if by some miracle was elected, Biden would definitely not last uh, beyond the first year. And so it would be the VP. And so who that is... You know, I don't know. Um, there are some not worst case scenarios that might not be too bad uh, if it was Barbara Lee or I don't know, somebody. But really, it's just the Democratic Party has decided that they would rather maintain their power structures than actually win the election because Biden's not going to win. So, um, you know, there are some scenarios uh, that we could see Bernie still winning, Some some very unlikely but still somewhat possible scenarios such as um joe biden becoming like visibly senile before the the primaries are over and completely having to drop out and you know it becoming a landslide for bernie because everyone's lost their jobs and realized that socialism is the only way to get out of this and then all of the remaining states vote for bernie at a you know 80 percent rate um i don't know it could happen, I guess, but it's not super likely. Um, but I don't know. We're in a we're in a very bizarre time. I'm sure that a lot of you have been feeling the same way that I've been feeling, which is, uh, I mean, this, you know that that feeling that you get in your stomach when you, it's it's like you think that uh, some sort of weasel has 
clawed inside and then is trying to claw its way back out. You know, this this complete head-to-toe anxiety where you can feel it in the tips of your fingers, you can feel it in your toes, you almost feel like you're gonna, you know, have an out-of-body experience, like you're almost dissociating from the amount of anxiety that you have. Yeah, so that's just our, like, our, our day-to-day experience for all of us now. And, but the, the reason that we're feeling like that is because the world is so fucked that we, we've entered just, like, absolute wildcard mode, and nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, but the thing that I'm, I'm trying to, 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 you know, grapple with along with the sort of uh, channeling productive emotions is we, we're all feeling very terrified and powerless right now. We feel like we don't know what's going to happen. But the idea that we don't know what's going to happen is, you know, it's true, but we don't want that to be a product of feeling like we're we're completely out of control in this situation. There's a lot of things out of out of our control, namely this uh, tiny single-celled organism that's trying to murder all of us and is doing a pretty good job. But, you know, we, dare I say it, live in a society and, you know, there are ways that we can come together around this thing and and shape our future like that is a thing we can do the future is not just gonna ha- like i mean unless you you believe in a higher power the future isn't something that just happens to us it's something that is uh controlled and shaped by the decision the the sort of aggregate decisions of of individual people around the world so there there are ways we can shape this into a future there are ways that we can use this experience to radicalize people and and at the very least this is showing the need for a public social safety net. I don't know if there's going to be any libertarians left at the end of this. That's actually something I, I might, maybe I'll do that for an episode because it would it would keep me entertained, is like, go find what libertarians are, are saying right now. Like, how are they justifying to their ideology to themselves during this crisis where clearly the only thing that can get any of us out of this is collective action? I don't know how libertarians are, are are doing right now or what they're what they're saying, but I'm actually really curious. So maybe I'll go um, I'll go I'll go check out a subreddit or something and see what they're saying. And if you find any good uh, galaxy brain libertarian takes about why this you know all of this is proving that uh, collective action or the government or whatever they want to call it is bad, actually, please send them to me because, um, yeah, I can't I I just. I need something to laugh at. <laughs> but um, yeah, if there's going to be anything to come out of this, hopefully it's it's realizing that, you know, uh, we need a social safety net. We need something uh, like, I don't, I don't know about UBI necessarily, but we need public, publicly funded health care. We need publicly funded health research. We need publicly funded everything. We need a social safety net. We need uh, employment insurance. We need you know, we, we need housing. Like the, I, the thing I, I keep thinking about, and this is really relevant to those of you who listen to this podcast um, more for the, the drug policy stuff, is uh, people who don't have houses or homes, uh, at least like safe, safe housing, they are the most vulnerable people right now because there's nowhere for them to go. There's, uh, you know, uh, Zoe Dodd, um, who you should follow on Twitter. She's an activist in, in Toronto who does drug policy stuff. 
she uh, just tweeted out today that Toronto police are harassing homeless people, telling them you can't be outside. Where the fuck are they supposed to go? There's nowhere for them to go. They've closed shelters. and Like, that's not, it, you know, the normal places where they would be able to get a shower or use a bathroom or just sit inside and be warm. All of that stuff is shut down. So there's incredibly vulnerable populations right now that, you know, without even having COVID hit those populations yet, they're already suffering. But when it does hit, like, imagine you don't have a home to go to. You rely on other people. Maybe you need to, um, there's a drug that you need to get every single day. So you're, you're interacting with other people, trying to get money, trying to uh, get yourself your, your, your treatment. And you also don't have access to anywhere to wash your hands. You don't have access to hand sanitizer because fucking people from the nearby suburbs have gone and, and stocked, all, stocked all, uh, it all up taken all of it from stores so that they can either just hoard it or resell it on Amazon at an exorbitant price because they're, uh, you know, disaster profiteers. These, these people are not, you know, they're, they're going to be so at risk because they literally don't have any way to, to keep them, their hands clean because we have denied them that systemically as a society and particularly in, in moments like this. So if you can uh, donate to, to local organizations that are helping the homeless, please do that. Um, and uh, even, even if, if you manage to go to a store or, or find some hand sanitizer or alcohol or anything like that, just go downtown and hand, like put some gloves on and, and just hand them to people, you know. Um, obviously, you want to try to keep a distance. Social distancing is is incredibly important and all that kind of thing. But if there's anything that you can do in these moments, it's literally just give, um, give things to homeless people, give them money, give them hand sanitizer, do it directly. If you can, um, I'm, I'm always trying to encourage people that one of the most important things you can do, uh, is just giving panhandlers money, you know, uh, it's, it's money will be better spent going directly into their hands than into, you know, some charity organization that's going to give out food or whatever. Those organizations, organizations are important, but they get donations from companies that want to write off the taxes and everything. Those organizations are not giving these people money, which is what they need. Um, so even if they might be able to access like food once in a while, um, for a lot of these people, they need, uh, things other than just, you know, cans of soup or whatever is being handed out to survive. They need, they might need, um, heroin or fentanyl, um, because they, they literally, their, their bodies are so accustomed to it that, uh, they will go into shock and possibly die if they don't get it. That means that the only way that they can get that drug is with money and, uh, aid organizations are not handing out drugs. Um, at least they're not until I get in charge of the, <laughs> the aid organizations. So if you can get them some money, that would be really helpful um, if you have extra hand sanitizer. Obviously, uh, these are vulnerable populations. A lot of people who live outside are immunocompromised. They might have hepatitis or HIV, um, which means they're doubly vulnerable. Um, and so you want to protect them from you as well. So if you do, if you do give anybody... Uh, money or or you know um, packaged food or hand sanitizer please make sure that you personally wash your hands very well or use hand, hand sanitizer on yourself before giving it to them because they are more at risk from you than you are from them honestly so yeah um I will try to record more often 
because I think that it's probably therapeutic for both me uh, and, well, I don't know if this podcast is therapeutic for anybody else, but I know that there's some people who really like it and appreciate me being able to do it every week. So I am going to try to make an effort to um, continue with this, especially because we're all alone and we're indoors and we need more than ever to find ways to connect. So, you know, I've thought about doing things like I'm spending a lot of my time uh, uh, reading, reading about capitalism and drug policy and various things. Like I could literally just start a Twitch stream and read my books and articles out loud if that helps people. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out ways um, to make those connections while still doing my work, um, partly because, you know, my work is is education and I am not um, teaching students right now. Uh, so if it's helpful to anybody for me to um, do that kind of sharing of, of these educational resources, then I, I can, um, especially when we're all stuck inside. But at the very least, I can keep this podcast going. And um, yeah, I can I can get maybe some uh some phone interviews i know I, I always keep saying that but um i'll 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 still make an effort to try to organize those because i know it's more fun when it's you know a bit of an intro and then an interview than just me talking for an hour although i could definitely do that as well so i'll leave it here please stay safe everybody practice social distancing talk to your parents Talk to your loved ones. Talk to your aunts and uncles. I, I know that it's uh, become kind of a cliche that older people are not taking the quarantine or, you know, the, the social distancing as seriously as young people are. But I had talks with both of my parents. They're both taking it pretty seriously, which was very reassuring. But it, it was actually, I could hear in their voices that it was really um, nice for them to hear how concerned I was. Uh and I, you know, went through all the sort of like epidemiological stuff and told them, please, you need to do this. This is really serious. They're, they're looking at, you know, you know, I tried to give them information, but also just it really coming from place of concern and care. Um, your your older family members will, will probably like to hear that. And that just knowing that you're concerned and that they're doing you a personal favor by staying inside is probably more effective than any kind of um, fear-mongering, although the fear-mongering in this case is also important. So yeah, talk to your older family members, try to get them to, to stay indoors, do everything that you can to, to help them out, drop off groceries, all that kind of stuff, um, and stay safe yourself. This is the time to be as paranoid as possible. Let your inner germ freak come out wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, do everything that you can to stay safe, but mostly just stay inside as hard as it is. I know those of you who have kids, it's 10 times harder to stay inside, but you know, you can still get outside. I really, I've been trying to get out for, for walks or runs every single day because sometimes it, with this social isolation stuff, it can feel like you have to just stay inside and that's not actually the case. Um, you can go outside, just stay away from people as awful as that is. Um, yeah, just go, go for walks, go for runs, go sit by, if you have a local body of water, just go sit and watch the water, go sit and watch the sunset, um, bundle up and, and just get outdoors, just breathing in fresh air, like looking at a tree, these little things can make a huge difference in your mental health and your ability to continue this social distancing long-term because it might be a really long time that we have to keep doing this, but we're going to do it together. I love you all. Stay safe. And 
Enjoy this interview with Michael Hintz, furry anthropologist. Okay, so I'm here with Michael Hintz, friend of mine, anthropologist who studies... Uh, among other things, furries in the furry fandom. Yeah, so we're just sitting here in my kitchen uh, having some tea. That'll be the noises you hear as us uh, sipping on tea. We'll try not to do it too loudly. <clears throat> but yeah, I just wanted to kind of... I, I mean, number one, because I think your research is super interesting. Um, as, as you know, a weirdo uh, to my core. I always find myself drawn to other weirdos and counterculture. Um, so... Uh, but specifically, you know, for, for the podcast, I wanted to talk to you about um, the sort of intersection of uh, the furry fandom and um, leftism mm. and possibly, you know, the kind of use of, of drugs in the culture. Um, but yeah, why don't we start with kind of like, I don't know how good your, your like elevator speech is, <laughs> your elevator pitches, or like, what is your yeah. research for a layperson? So, um... Basically, and so you're at the University of... I'm at uh, Florida Gulf Coast University. Okay. It's a regional university, southwest Florida. Okay. Yeah. But um, my research um, it kind of focuses, revolves around the goal of, I think the fandom experiences a lot of undue stigmatization, and that um, it's fit into these narratives of where the only interesting we can talk about the fandom is whether or not it's... Um, a sexual fetish, whether or not it's a paraphilia, mm -hmm. whether or not these are just a bunch of like weird, kinky people getting up to weird things. And um, I think there's so much more to be said about the fandom. I think the fandom uh, just has so many more interesting aspects. So my research is just very broadly trying to uncover those aspects and um, then critiquing why uh, academia and academics in particular are so... Um, uh, tunnel visioned onto only certain parts of the fandom. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, can you tell me a little bit about the differences? Because um, you and I have talked uh, before about the difference between sort of academic, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the sort of traditional academic structure yeah. uh, research on furry fandom versus um, outside of academia and what the differences are. So there's a lot um, written in academia itself, then there's um, some stuff published just by like journalists writing you know, op-eds and stuff like that about the local furry cons coming to their city. Um, and then there's stuff produced by furries themselves, uh, published by furries themselves. Um, but so in academia, um, the first um, peer-reviewed thing about furries was published in 2008 um, by a group that is now called Fur Science. They used to go by IARP, International Anthropomorphic Research Project. Um, and so that group is mainly psychologists, um, and they publish mainly in journals um, of animal studies, uh, fan studies, which I didn't know fan studies was a thing until um, I started researching furries. Uh, hmm. But So animal studies, fan studies, and then uh, uh, psychology journals and uh, clinical practice journals. Cool. And so, um, can you remind me again, I think you, you told me yesterday that um, the origins of, um, would, would you call it like the fandom, would that, mm -hmm. is that a term that 
is yeah. appropriate so to use. Just to or like furry culture. I don't know what kind of terminology. In my academic writing, I'm a bit more selective with the terms I use, and that I'll usually talk about furry culture, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. But um, furries do reference themselves as a fandom. Um, I personally don't believe fandom in this in, in our usage matches like the dictionary definition i don't believe it matches any sort of like scientific definition because like unlike anime fandoms like we're producing our own culture we're producing everything right um, yeah we're not based off like um we have a lot of similarities to the mlp fandom mm -hmm. but of course they Pony, have a, right? yeah. they have a show going on yeah um they have source material if you mm -hmm. will um furry is just inter in interested in anything broadly considered anthropomorphic and even not anthropomorphic things are included in the fandom um the fandom is uh for me when i talk about an academia it's an emic term it is a term only make made sense inside the culture that uses it so okay yeah. um yeah but so you were uh you were telling me that that furry culture began actually like a lot longer mm -hmm. ago than most people think so wh what were the origins so um, there are definitely better fandom historians about this, and I can, if you have show notes, I can leave links in those. Cool. Yeah, we'll do that. But um, the fandom's been around for about four decades at this point. Um, four decades. Yeah. Like, that's... Um, it started in sci-fi sci conventions and all that. Um, um, just grew out of people meeting in those spaces um, before, you know, they were able to realize that, oh, they have something themselves and they can create their own spaces. Mm -hmm. They can, they have enough, you know, cultural um, interest that people will show up for these sort of things, like, without it being related to anything else. So mm -hmm. it took a while for that to happen. The first convention started in the 90s. Um, the big ones really took off in the early um, 2000s, like Anthrocon is still around. And so, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, that's such a longer history than I feel like most people would kind of assume that it's just, oh, it's an, it's an internet thing, but yeah. yeah. It was definitely spurred by the internet, but it, you know, didn't, didn't have to start there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, talk to me a bit about, uh, because I, I feel like a lot of the, the phrase that I sort of see mm -hmm. online and interact with, especially on, on Twitter, um, there's a lot of overlap between, uh, furry culture and circles, uh, social circles with, uh, like leftists mm. and communists and obviously, um, like queer circles, like it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of overlap. So can yeah. you tell me about sort of like how and why leftism intersects with freedom? Well, the furry fandom just in general is very queer. It's, mm -hmm. um, kind of one of the taglines is furry culture is just incredibly accepting of everyone except for of course Nazis <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know it's like to be tolerant you have to be intolerant of assholes yeah so we we have that uh, stipulation but um, of course um, so it's just a very queer culture and in that sense um, queer generally implies you're you know progressive in some way mm -hmm. um, so in that sense I think the furry culture was always kind of predisposed to lean toward the left um, I I want to do more research so that I can um, provide stronger arguments, but my feeling generally is that furry culture doesn't necessitate anything. It is so vague, it is so based in escapism that while it definitely does lean left, you can bring your whatever your own politics into it. And that definitely does cause um, certain levels of strife and animosity between, you know, definitely more like hardcore Marxist furs and, mm -hmm. you know, furs that, um, 
are in the military and really proud of it or mm. for us that are cops you know there, there's definitely um interesting yeah <laughs> there was a re- recent drama at a convention i forget which one but um so german chef first people that have their persona as a german shepherd mm-hmm. um generally are into a cop aesthetic right whether or not that means they support cops or whether or not they believe um a cab or whatever yeah i don't know why when i think of a german shepherd i'm like yeah sure that's a fascist dog yeah (laughs) it feels really unfair to german um, shepherds but you know they take their fursuit and then they cosplay cop uh um just cosplay the cop over it so you know they'll have like vests and stuff um it can definitely be cute but there's definitely you know an argument to be made about you know appropriating um aesthetics from the state um yeah sorry uh well exactly but also um, even just on a sort of interpersonal level, does mm-hmm. that cause conflict? Because I would imagine that that can make some people, especially, you know, queer people, people of color, um, mm-hmm. really uncomfortable yeah. at cons. Like... Yeah. So it's like, you know, the whole no cops at pride. Well, you know, right. furry cons are very, they're, they're basically pride events in, to a large extent. Right. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of, uh, struggle within the culture about, you know, what is acceptable mm-hmm. yeah. and those conversations are, you know, always ongoing. Yeah. So. Interesting. Um, so, so what are you hoping to? So you're here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You're here for. Uh, I'm here for Vancouver. Vancouver. Vancouver, the Vancouver 2020. The theme is um, Neon City. So uh, oh, cool. cyberpunk vibe. Oh, nice. Yeah, that'll be cool. <laughs> um, it fits in. really well because I'm writing about you know cyborg theory. So it just it blends together perfectly. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, or do you think you're going to post any pictures from it? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. awesome. And can you can you give people your ad so they can follow you? Um, so I have two ads. One is my real IRL account, I don't know. Um, and that is at yerfologist, so Y-E-R-F-ologist. Uh, yerf is my fursona. Um, mm-hmm. Very uncreative name. But um, then oh, my yeah. furry account, if you would like to follow that, I'm much less active on it, but it's yerf your fear of so y-e-r-f three times okay um yeah so what are you hoping hoping to sort of like what are the questions that you're gonna be asking going into this this convention because you're actually there doing participant Mm -hmm. observation right yeah so just briefly i'll just explain um to those who aren't familiar with uh ethnography which is Mm. uh generally the anthropologist's um methodology for conducting research we do ethnography, which means um, it can mean a lot of different things, but, but the main sort of core of it is participant observation. Mm-hmm. So you go and you don't just sort of like stand there with like a clipboard at the side, like taking notes. You actually like participate. Yeah. And that's why you are often increasingly in anthropology. I mean, it used to be, um, you know, kind of white people going to mm-hmm. um, like islands and, and <laughs> studying the, yeah. the natives. But increasingly in anthropology, we're seeing people study their own cultures, um, which is kind of what I do, yeah. studying drug users, and what you do as well. Um, so you're going to be, uh, yeah, tell me about what you're going to be doing there. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm going to be focusing this time, I'm um, intentionally kind of narrowing what questions I want to ask, because I just don't want to try and give a full sweep, a full ethnographic, you know, sweep of the furry culture, because um, I just feel that's kind of pointless. I don't want to do that, actually. Um, so I'm very much interested in focusing on the economic structures furries have, oh, um, because one of the interesting things I read a while ago is this furry said, of going back to furries generally being left, um, uh, furry, sa- uh, furry said, furries are at the margins of capitalism, mm. furry, sh- 
the way the furry economy runs, and it very much is an economy um, in kind of any way you want to think about what an economy means. Um, it's kind of outside of how capitalism operates. But to a certain extent, that um, there are multiple ways that is true and multiple ways that is false, because obviously one of the main ways furries uh, congregate is in conventions, which take place at hotels that are very expensive, mm -hmm. and then, you know, we don't, prov like, um, other queer festivals or permaculture type festivals will do something where like they'll provide food for each other or something or they'll help with each other no it's like we're all staying at a hotel we're eating fast food um so yeah. um there's no there's no fully escaping capitalism but the way the mm -hmm. art works the way art production works the way fursuit production works all of that is very outside of any very big like corporate uh type of right. business okay um, so it's mostly sort of like one-on-one -on -one commissions? Um, well, so one of the things I want to write about is how the economy operates to produce um, certain ways of making kin, kinship. Kinship's mm. a really interesting line of questioning I want to go into with the fandom. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, you know, you often see it's like, you know, there's a commissioner and then there's an artist. But often people will, um, there's relationships to how those transactions work and that some people might get art as a gift for somebody else some people might get art saying like hey i'm getting this art piece but it's going to have uh my significant other's persona in it as well and that way it can be like um a sign of romantic affection or something like that or you can say like hey i want to get something for all of my buddies that go to this convention for me so we're going to buy this like one picture split the cost maybe but, you know, we'll have eight of us in it. So it's like, it's not a one-to-one -one thing because there, it's such a, I, I feel like the way the economy operates is that it's a way of building relationship. It's a way of establishing kin. So it's not a, you know, exchange of money for a commodity. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. And I think there's a lot of, we talked about this extensively yesterday <laughs> as we were hanging out, but um, there's a lot of overlap um, between that and, and rave culture where mm. it's like everyone obviously uh, is embedded in capitalism in their day-to-day -day yeah. lives and has to um, make money to be able to come to these things. But then when you come, yeah. people are, are trying to create these structures of kinship that, that are, are less exploitative and, mm -hmm. and hierarchical and, yeah. and people are trying to uh, to gift things yeah. as a way of forming bonds. I'm very much not interested in like exonerating the fandom or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in just showing the nuance in the fandom. I think that gets... Mm -hmm paved over by very annoying and harmful narratives of, yeah. you know, that are very reductionist. So. Yeah, and and along those lines, could we could we talk about stigma a little bit? Mm. Um, like, yeah. I'm really curious because, um, you know, I study a, a very very stigmatized topic, and I've <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah. I've run into um, I've run into stigma within academia, obviously a lot without outside yeah. of academia even more. Um, but ha what kind of um, what kind of stigma have you had to deal with? Uh, both like as a person uh, who's part of the culture and also as, as somebody who's studying it. So, I mean, I guess I can just start off with the most recent type of thing is that um, my mom was driving me to the airport, mm -hmm. uh, catching like a 3 a.m. flight to Vancouver. I live in Florida, so, you know, it was a pretty decent flight. Mm -hmm. um, and she was like, oh, what are you going for? And I was just trying to go, you know, I'm doing research for school. Oh, she doesn't know? No. It was oh, like, wow. I just don't want to have that conversation. But, right. you know, I have to... She put me in a conversational corner. I told her I'm going to a furry convention. And she's like, what's a furry convention? And then I had to, like, you know, fucking explain the whole fandom. Oh, wow. Um, and it's just not a conversation I wanted to have at, like, 3.30 a.m. Right. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. Does, uh, I'm sorry. Does she know that you're queer? 
Yeah, she knows I'm gay. Okay. She doesn't know I'm non-binary. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but... Okay, so we, we, it, won't, we won't send her this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure she'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> she won't ever find it. But, um, yeah, so uh, it's just one of those things where it's just like one of those conversations that I'd just rather not have. It's just one of those parts of my life that's, you know, I'm open about it to people that I trust don't have those misconceptions. But um, I told my professors I'm doing this project. One of them is incredibly supportive. Oh, my God, I love her so much. Um, but two of the others, uh, my pro and I'm not shitting on my department here, just, you know, it's just what the misconceptions people have and why I just yeah. rather just not have to talk about it. But, you know, when I, I'm applying for grants, I very much do need to tell the professors what I'm going for, right? Yeah. Um, so I told them, this like, oh, so you're studying, so you want to study sexual fetishes? And I'm like, no! Uh. Ah. <laughs> like, no! It's like, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to do that. Um... So it's just people assuming when I say I study the furry, when I study the furry fandom as a furry, assuming what I'm there to do, assuming the arguments I want yeah. to make. You know, it's just it's just frustrating to be put into that box, which you know is something a lot of queer people deal with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and see, I'm I'm curious about that too because there's probably I I would imagine sort of a tension between um and I've I've seen this in sort of like you know uh, interactions online um that. The furry people in the furry culture don't don't want to um, be pigeonholed or, or misunderstood as it mm. being like an entirely sexual culture. But then if you push back on that too much, it's sort of like it's the same thing as saying, oh, because it being like or part of this culture being sexual is bad. So you don't want to like yeah. end up like stigmatizing your, you know, yeah. stigmatizing it by being too defensive about the sexualization of it, but yeah. you also don't want it to be overly sexualized in ways that aren't accurate. Yeah, and I think that it's a very fine tightrope to rock of where, you know, um, it's a lot of queer people, so uh, sexual liberation is a very real thing, you know, that we all, like, kind of go through as we grow into our identities mm -hmm. um, and figure all of that uh, amazing stuff out. But um, it's also a fine tightrope to rock because you don't want to just be pigeonholed into your whole life. It's about your sexual life. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just, it's just one of the questions that I'm just not really going to address in my research because I just don't think it's relevant. Like, yeah. you know, we address all these, in anthropology, we do all the ethnographies of other cultures and, you know, the, the classics, the old ethnographers, sometimes they would never even acknowledge that women existed in the society. So it's like, and nowadays, you know, they can do an ethnography of a whole culture and maybe the sexual, the sexuality of that culture will be given, you know, a paragraph at most out of a whole mm -hmm. book. Um, so for me, it's like the idea that I have to write about how furries express their sexuality, how furries construct sexual relations between each other. It's like it's like ridiculous that I would have to do that to me. Yeah, and I mean, and and you you know this already, but just for for the audience to kind of explain it in anthropology, there's been this this weird sort of um, <laughs> history of mm. yeah. At the beginning, uh, anthropologists would you know, obviously leave out a lot of culture and they yeah. would study these specific things, but the, the things that they were leaving out, they weren't um, doing it consciously so much as the, they were leaving these things out because they were a product of their time and they were like, well, w women's stuff, that's for women, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it was like you Malinowski know. is often credited with writing incredible ethnography about the culture of um, Trobriand Islanders, but he didn't write anything about... Uh, the labor women do in the culture so it's like you know if your economy excludes half of the fucking people that live in it um, yeah it's not it's gonna kind be, of ridiculous it's not gonna be very representative <laughs> but then so in anthropology there was there was this um i, I don't really remember the decade that this happened mm. only that i hate reading stuff from it 
maybe it was the, the 60s or 50s or something like that, but there was, um, there was a switch to where they were like, oh, okay, we have to, we have to describe everything. And Ooh. so mm. anthropological treatises would be yeah, like... Yeah, I think that was Gert's thick description in the 80s. Yeah, and well, I mean, but then it was, they, they were starting to come around to like the, um, uh, the, what's it called? You know, where they, uh, the, the writing culture kind of turn where, where, mm. um, the, the reflexive turn oh, okay, where they yeah, yeah. where they started talking about oh we're, we're themselves as a writer yeah is, acknowledging is a part, that like, you know you're not an objective like third eye camera yeah like I culture, you're right? the production of of the text that you're writing about this culture is yeah is um, not an apolitical process but yeah. yeah so there was a bunch of ethnographies that that they thought they had to describe everything mm -hmm. and so now what ethnographers do and what you know you're you're kind of describing and what I'm looking at in my own research too is something that Audra Simpson calls ethnographic refusal which is yes. um which is also you know it's uh it's a term um that was developed in sort of uh indigenous uh anthropologists mm -hmm. studying their own cultures and realizing Oh no, there's some parts of my culture that are not yeah, for right. other people. This is not for you. I don't have to I don't have to talk about the parts of my culture that I don't want to uh, yeah. because I know that it people are, you know, the readers and the audience are going to interpret things in a certain way and if I don't feel that um the readers are going to interpret this in a way um that I, I, if I feel that uh, the interpretation of what I'm talking about is going to be harmful to my community, mm -hmm. I'm just going to not talk about it because that's you know, none of this should be for anybody, but, but the community. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's what you're practicing and that's, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm producing knowledge as a furry, hopefully for furries, you know, I don't know if any of them will read it. I know shit posted in my furry group chats and they're like, that's great, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, uh, just, you know, I'm speaking from where I'm at, which I think is a good position to be able to write something uh, important and respectable about the fandom. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you do you anticipate um, when you're when you're writing up your research, are you going to try to write it with both audiences in mind, like both the community and academia, or how how do you think you're going to? Uh, I think um, I'm definitely going to uh, write my arguments multiple ways. So you know, I'm, um, I, I might make an argument about um, furry kinship, what have you. Um, and then I uh, might publish that as a journal on fur affinity. Um, that would be written in a very different way than I would mm -hmm. if I sent that off to, you know, a peer reviewed publication. Right. They, it will have the same message. It just, you know, might not have such a loaded theory or, you know, a full, you know, bibliography or what have you. Right. But, you know. Okay. Um, and so last, last uh, sort of topic I wanted to ask about was, um, uh, drug use that happens at mm. these conventions. And so obviously that includes, cannabis and alcohol yeah. um but you know kind of all of the above is there a is there a culture of that yeah so there definitely is um furry conventions um everybody experiences them differently that's just one of the things about the fandom there's no real total generalization you can make about the fandom in any way mm -hmm. which is one of the interesting things for me as an academic trying to think about what i can say mm -hmm. um but there are drugs present there's a lot of alcohol present there's a lot of weed present um I mean, I could I, I could go through a list and go like, hey, these are the, all the things present and kind of give you like, I don't know, like a, um, a ledger sheet mm -hmm. <laughs> of the drugs. But I don't think that's so much useful as understanding kind of how the drugs are used to, you know, relate with other people. Mm -hmm. 
I have a very limited perspective, you know, acknowledging where I am in the fandom and both, you know, just how I interact with other furries. I don't do many very hard drugs. Um, so I do only interact with, you know, weed and alcohol, and um, I've seen other people do yeah, harder. Alcohol is a pretty hard drug. <laughs> well, we don't have to get into that. Depends on how hard you go. But, um, yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, other people have done harder drugs around me, and, but, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things where um, everybody experiences it individually, and I think there is something to be said uniquely on it. I don't mm -hmm. think I'm the one to say something on it, though. Mm -hmm. I think other furries are much better positioned to say something yeah, on it. Yeah, that's totally fair. Yeah. And I do want to say, I feel like the people who listen to my podcast are all pretty drug-positive people, <laughs> and they yeah. understand, but I do want to make clear that, you know, it's it can be hard to talk about these topics because I ask about drug use in certain um, subcultures and environments because I'm curious and because um, because drug use happens everywhere yeah. and even if it was just alcohol um, and it would be just as interesting to me to hear no there's no drugs used mm -hmm. that would be really rare at a convention yeah. um, to, as to hear yeah. no alcohol is the main thing. Um, or, or no, it's cannabis, or you know, yeah. it's no, it's everyone's everyone's on MDMA because mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but I know that it can be hard to talk about these things because uh, drug use is so stigmatized and yeah. it's illegal that um, you know it. You don't want it to to reflect yeah. on the community in ways that other people might misinterpret. But yeah. you know, it's just it's yet another conversation of as, as to why um, it's important to <laughs> destigmatize and legalize yeah. drugs because it's not bad to be doing these things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all humans all over the world. Whenever we gather together, most of the time there's drugs involved. Um, but uh, it can be a bit more dangerous to be um, kind of out and open and talking about these things, especially in spaces where people are already marginalized because they're queer mm -hmm. or anything like that. So yeah. um, I'm very careful about not just, again, ethnographic people. I'm not, I'm very careful about just not adding fuel of, you know, publishing mm -hmm. something about, oh, this really weird thing, oh, this really dangerous thing. You know, some people might perceive it as dangerous, what mm -hmm. have you. Um, not publishing that material, not giving them that ammo. Because yeah, absolutely. They don't need it. They don't need it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, and I do want to, uh, it, it can be also difficult, um, when people don't know a lot about anthropology to hear, oh, we're, we're withholding information intentionally. Like that doesn't sound very like scientifically sound, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, all, all forms of knowledge production, you have to choose what, yeah. what you're like, cause you're, you're not going to say everything. Um, even, you know, I've, I've read sociology books where they try to be really thorough and blah, 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 but like, you're still making choices as yeah. to what. You're talking about because your choices are framed from the very beginning by your research questions. You're yes. not just asking like, "Hey, what's going on yeah. here?" Like, tell me everything. It's not like, just like why furry question mark. Yeah. Like... <laughs> like, why? <laughs> what? Yeah. So, um, so yeah. These all all researchers, even if they claim to be unbiased or to you know, yeah. it, it's not true. Um, from the very beginning of why you're even interested in it, you're you're yeah. coming in with with a set of um, preconceived yeah. biases and questions. And again, it's not a problem to have those preconceived biases. It's just yeah. technology and We're that, human. Like, you're only <laughs> we have them. able to speak from a certain position. And, you know, you speak from your position, you know, only say what you're able to say very well. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have to, yeah, to, to be human is to acknowledge um, those biases. Uh, I, yeah, I read yesterday about a journalist who was talking about how to be objective, like he, he's completely apolitical, he's mm -hmm. totally objective, to have, add no bias in, into his work, he doesn't support candidates, he doesn't even vote. And I was like, yeah, but 
the, okay, the, but like, yeah, the, the concept hell? of like being apolitical yeah. is a politics. It's a stance in itself. Yeah. Like I, it drives me nuts to the idea that anyone can be apolitical. Like mm-hmm. if you are, if you claim to be apolitical, then that just means that you are endorsing the status quo. Yeah, just like galaxying your brain, galaxy braining yourself out of like any sort of interaction you have with society or thing. Yeah. You have any real effect on it. Yeah. Um. Exactly. Yeah. It's a cop out. But um, it's a it's a real thing actually, and um, uh, talking about the three types of literature that are written about furries, uh, about what journalists write about furries, because they the way the articles go, and I and I've mainly focused on analyzing what academics have written about furries, so I haven't really fully done a full analysis of how journalists write about furries. But the way all the articles are structured is this front section of like furries are a stigmatized community they are often in reference like the csi episode if you know that Mm, no so just to explain quickly the csi episode was like from like 2001 or some shit it's like you know it's like 19 years old at this point Mm. um but it just it it depicted furries as um a bunch of fursuiters um just having sex in suit and it's like you know it's like creepy people and it's like the csi episode so right um So they'll usually reference that and say, oh, this community has them stigmatized. But did you know, not all of them are weird sexual fucking perverts. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, wow. I love, like, what a great lead. Great, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, it, it's just, you know, it, it's it's this narrative framing of this is how you have to talk about the fandom if you're going to talk about it, mm-hmm. where you have to lead in with this. And so it's for me, it's like, I'm just not going to talk about that. I'm going to provide mm-hmm. a different way of, um, interacting with my community. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, well, thanks. Thanks yeah. for, uh, for making this time. I know you're headed to the conference today. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Michael Hintz, uh, so you're a urophologist. At urophologist. Uh, on and, um, Twitter. If you are a furry and you have a fur affinity or a furry network, but I much prefer furry network, um, it's at your fur fur there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, if you're uh, a furry listening to this, uh, <laughs> solidarity uh, between the rave and burner communities and the furry community. Um, we, Michael and I spent a lot of time talking about that yesterday, especially because I went to um, the My Little, My Little Pony conference mm-hmm. uh, here in Vancouver called Van Hoover um, a few weeks ago because I have a, fr- a friend of mine um, is one of the voices on the show, so I just went to check it out. And it was really cool talking to people about um, that sort of uh, overlap because, mm-hmm. you know, burners like to wear yeah. costumes and, um, you know, to participate in in sort of these temporary fantasies of being outside of, of capitalist consumer culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I love the overlap between all of these communities. And I, I love the idea of um, building solidarity among them because yeah. if we're going to smash capitalism, we have to do it together. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you.